Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going. I'm excited to be here. We're talking about uh, a series that I spent a lot of time watching last year. Which, to be honest, I was pretty surprised about because normally you're not like a huge consumer of a ton not of a, cycling. I don't video. watch a lot of bike race. You know, we talk to a lot of people who are, are big cycling fans. And, and thank you for that, because it is the sport we, we you know, you cover and I coach. Uh, but yeah, I've always been into training of sports. So I, I'll still keep up on baseball training and ultimate fighting. I mean, fighting championships and that sort of thing, but I don't watch any of that stuff. Uh, but yeah, for some reason, this call of a lifetime series, you know, it just seemed like it was a, a good one. It seemed like something that was a big moment in, in our North American cycling, whether you, you, you are into it or you have feelings. Yes, exactly. And I think, yeah, most people really got really amped up on a lot of the races that they got to see. And I think it's actually also, it was really helpful because you have tons of clients who do Leadville and Unbound, both of uh, both races were profiled in season one of Call of a Lifetime. Uh, in fact, if you are racing uh, either Leadville or Unbound, we do have plans that actually start in January to get you ready for those. Uh, they're both available on consummateathlete.com. I think they're pretty recently highlighted because they started this month. So very easy to find. We'll link That's to them right. in the show notes. And in the show notes, we'll have a, a link for or a code for 25% off, but you'll have to find that in the show notes. We won't tell you on, on the, the call here. So ooh, ooh, there you sneaky. go. And that's right. off of any of our plans in the Training Peak. So if you're not doing that event, you can get any of our other event plans or goal-based plans in the Training Peak store. Awesome. So today, the reason we're talking about Call of a Lifetime and the Lifetime Grand Prix series is because we have Shannon Van Divier on. He is actually the founder of uh, Cold Collaborative, and he's the guy that put together. He pitched Lifetime on the series, the Call of a Lifetime series, as, and you know what, I'm going to say it didn't sound as corny two years ago, Drive to Survive, but for cyclists. I know okay. every every sport now has Drive to Survive, but for. Well, uh, I mean that you can say that, but then also it's like, well, it is it is working. I think, you know, I'm watching it and, and you know, obviously Drive to Survive did, did great, but there's lots of these other ones that, you know, people have told me about the Tour de France one that's on Netflix and, and obviously that model works. For sure. Well, I thought about it as I was like kind of joking about it. I was like, well, you know what? Like the first reality show, it's not like, I mean, think about sure. how that went, right? I, every pitch after that would be like, okay, it's like, and I don't know what. Well, or I anything, guess, you know, the, Big Brother the whole Big Brother? home and garden channel, no offense if you work there, but I mean, it's like, do it yourself for tiny homes, do it yourself in this city, do it yourself for whatever. Paint it all white, put down a Chevron floor, uh, bump up, bump it up, bump it out. That's right. That's right. Uh, anyway, uh, so Shannon also really got back into cycling himself during the course of the series. He actually kind of started riding again about almost a year ago now and actually did some ra uh, did a race uh, in the fall. So we talk about what his journey looked like, how that changed the filming. Uh, but I mean, this is just a really fun episode for anyone who's watched Call of a Lifetime, anyone who's been interested in the Lifetime Grand Prix series. I think we really get kind of a, a behind the scenes look at what goes into filming something like this. But also, I think Shannon's just fascinating in terms of what he's done with his career, but also uh, really his re-entry to bikes and what that looked like for him. So I think it's a really, really fun conversation. 
All right. So with that, let's get into it. Enjoy this episode with Shannon and make sure that you check out Call of a Lifetime season two. I dropped on January 26th. So a couple days before this episode went live or goes live. However, I should say that depending on uh, when you're listening to it. Uh, and of course, head over to consummateathlete.com to grab the show notes or just pull it up in whatever podcast player you're listening to. If you want to check out training plans for Unbound, Leadville, or any other event you possibly have coming up. All right, let's get into it. I found so much freedom in organization, which in a way on the surface might look like a trap, but it's actually freedom. Oh you know? my gosh. You're speaking my language. You're speaking my language. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. You're pioneering. You're, you, you definitely, you're one of my role models on that front. So, oh. and nobody listening right now has any context what we're talking about, but Hey, cheers to that. Exactly. And I mean, like with that said, let's, let's kick this right off. I feel like our organizational event here is very important to the podcast because I think we're both going to talk about the fact that that's why we're able to do all of the work we do and still find time to ride and do all of that stuff. Totally. Yeah. Um, that that does not come easy. So no. Shannon, <laughs> let's start with your intro. Like who the heck are you? How did you come to bikes and film? How did Cold Collaborative start? All the things. Cool. Yeah. Uh, loaded question. Well, I know, right? Raised, <laughs> <laughs> I, we could go five different routes here. Born and raised in Austin, Texas. Um had a unique upbringing in the sense that um, a lot of the the people hanging around the dinner table were Pulitzer Prize winning photographers and what have you. My dad had a successful career as a photojournalist. And so from just like a very young age, you know, while I'm like playing with my GI Joes under the table or whatever, like I've always just been exposed to seeing the world through a lens. And that's so much to the framework of of my background and what's led me down the path that I'm on is I don't know that I ever had a choice. I certainly went to college. I definitely like started off as a finance major and then like slowly whittled my way more into a creative field, which was uh, which was biology and uh, biochemistry. I ended up getting my undergrad in that. Thought I was going to go to med school. And then just totally pulled a fast one on my then wife. We had just been married. She thought she was going to marry a doctor. And I was like, dude, you know, I, I went and visited the med school and I thought, this is not the lifestyle. Like I was not made this way. I was cut from a very different cloth. And that was to really not have an office. Um, and I think that I, I saw a lot of pitfalls in that path ahead and just from my background, you know, the cool thing was through college, I paid off my college before I got out of college with photography. You know, I would go shoot a wedding or I'd go, you know, just whatever the gig was like, it was cool. My dad, of course, hooked me up. I think I was 15 when I had my first image published, published in a magazine. And, um, and that was, that was cool. So I had some clients already in college and a, a, something I was able to maintain, um, I and... love that. Now, wait, did you, do you think like the finance and the bio stuff were like, you were just trying so hard to like fight against the, like doing yeah. the same thing as your dad? Well, like well, 100%, like when you're, you know, what is that? Um, when I'm 18 years old, the last place I want to be is still under my parents' thumb. Right. And so like I, my perception of freedom was probably moving in the opposite direction of everything that I thought was constraint, which was like, oh, dad doesn't want me to go. To my dad told me, he's like, son, you don't need college. In fact, I paid for my own college. And that's because he said, I've taught you 
a trade. You're a dang good photographer and you know, you can make a career out of this. You don't need college. And so, but of course, like a good father said, you follow the path that you want to follow. And so of course I wanted to go hang out with friends and I wanted to do the normal, like you're supposed to go to college thing. Um, you know, if I had a time machine, maybe I wouldn't go to college knowing what I know now, but that's impossible, right? In my 18-year-old mindset, I just wanted to get away from my parents and I wanted to start, you know, creating some footprints in this world that I could call my own. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely, I was, went down a, a path that I eventually realized was not the right path. And the first thing I did out of, out of when I decided I wasn't going to go to med school already, like at this point, six months married, of course, the panic of being married and being a provider and all that kind of stuff sets in. And so I started a wedding photography company. And that was like um, 2012, something like that. And okay. Yeah, that lasted all the way, maybe earlier, 2011. Anyways, that lasted all the way until like uh, 2019 or so. And it was my sister was my partner. And um, and it was fun because again, like dad being a Nat Geo photographer had some good street cred when people were thinking of hiring you for their weddings. And, um, yeah, we had a pretty successful career there, but it actually ended up being the thing that I siphoned money from to start a production company. Cause my whole vision long-term was, I was never fully satisfied with just a still image. You know, mm -hmm. I, I always felt like from a young age, and we can unpack a lot of that there if you want follow-up questions, but I always felt like I couldn't quite um, couldn't quite see the full story with just a still image. And that is eventually, that frustration is what pushed me into video. And um, I, I'm a product of YouTube University and didn't study film in school or anything like that. I just went to YouTube University. So. Oh, I love that. I love that. Uh, now we we do have to kind of backtrack and say, like you mentioned, uh, following in footsteps, but really you're following like tire treads too. You started in BMX as a kid too, right? Like let's get the, let's establish some bike uh, credibility yeah. here too. Yeah. Let's, let's speak to our demographic here for a second. Exactly. Yeah, so, you know, but like, like any nineties kid, right? Like we mm. were both born in 87. Like, yeah. man, like I have so much nostalgia growing up. I grew up in a neighborhood that was total suburbia, you know, you're, you know, maybe 20 feet from the next house, you're in a neighborhood full of kids. Everything we did was on the bike, everything. Yep. It was also that era where, you know, like I would leave the house at sunrise and not come back till sunset. My parents had no idea where I was. I was nine years old, cruising around the neighborhood, you know, a ranch backed up to the neighborhood. We would build forts and getting all sorts of travel out there, dodge snakes and catch snakes and what have you. And so the bike was the vector for everything. And so eventually, like I started like any other like 90s, like boy at that time. Um, and I'm, I'm sure some girls, um, we started building jumps and we started just like borderline wrecking ourselves and breaking our bikes. And we would hook the baseball playing cards up to the back wheel to make it sound like a motorcycle. And, you know, that was just like every I was obsessed with bikes. I was obsessed with um, launching myself as high in the air as I possibly could. And so eventually, I think my mom and dad realized like, okay, we need to put some framework around this for Shannon. Otherwise, he's going to end up like a Red Bull Rampage kid. And so, you know, like I ended up, you know, like my dad was like, I'm going to take you to a place called Capital City BMX. And it's like that whole culture is like still to this day unchanged, right? Just like everyone drives a diesel truck, like 
the ego coolers are busted out, you know, and it's an all day affair. And it was really cool. I loved it. It was all about going fast, hitting jumps, but also really getting through them as quick as you could. And I kind of I, I worked through that um, for many years. Um, I had the red line, you know, like super ultralight bike with the skinny tires as tight as you can get, like in many ways, like what gravel bikes have kind of become. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was kind of funny. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I went down that path for a long time until we had a strategy, uh, tragedy strike in our life. And, uh, we lost, um, my younger brother who was two years old at the time. And I was nine years old and that, that for about a year made our, our road pretty rocky. And we ended up moving to a different part of town. And once we moved, it just didn't make sense. Um, the BMXing was kind of too far and all of a sudden mountain biking became more of my focus, but really once high school set in and football and all those distractors in life, I think I walked, I didn't walk away from the bike. The bike was always there, but certainly wasn't my obsession for a really long time. Yeah. So. And I think that's the, that's a story for a lot of us at that uh, time, like that time in the world, like there just wasn't really like, there weren't bike racing and like mountain bike, like Nike didn't exist when we were teenagers. There wasn't anything oh. <laughs> pushing you to like do continue mountain biking in high school, but there's so many other inputs like on your time. So it makes perfect sense. Um, okay. So you're shooting weddings. You're like deciding you kind of want to get into this whole video thing. Uh, you know, you haven't ridden a bike or, you know, you're riding bikes or whatever, but like you haven't like seriously been into bikes for quite some time yet. Somehow you come up with the call of a lifetime series. Yeah. What, what the hell? <laughs> well, okay. I'm going to go down another road of compressing time, right? Yeah. So like we've got the Wayne's world, like, no, it's cool. This is like, let's set a good, let's set a good floor. Let's get a good baseline. Cause you know, obviously a lot of this call, we're just going to be focused on call of a lifetime and digging in deep into that. But I think, you know, again, in the effort to not drag this on to a Joe Rogan four hour podcast, um, <laughs> we'll, uh, We'll, we'll we'll just compress some time. So shooting weddings, honestly, people would be like, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I shoot weddings. And I always just, I, it's not that I was ashamed of being a wedding photographer. I just, it just wasn't fulfilling to me. It just, I knew every time the words came out of my mouth, it was good money. You know, like actually my sister and I saw a lot of success. We were doing really high-end weddings. People were flying us to Iceland and to London and, you know, just like, it was kind of cool. It was very niche. We were more quality over quantity. Um, and and we were very rewarded in that. But I just knew it wasn't my identity. I knew it wasn't, I wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't the ceiling. It wasn't the thing that I wanted to, the hill I wanted to die on. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I was at that point, um, you know, I'm, I'm way into fly fishing. I love saltwater fly fishing there's kind of a niche culture of fly fishermen you have like the old grumpy guys that like get on the river and then like sip fine wine at night then you have this subculture that's actually becoming a dominant culture within fly fishing which is like punk kids like the same culture that you'd find in like uh like mountain biking honestly like a little counterculture and um because fly fishing takes you and allows you to interact with the landscape much like mountain biking or gravel riding um in a unique and different way right you you look at landscapes different depending on what vector you're trying to engage it with and fly fishing was this fun way to go adventure and i love water i love being in water underwater especially do a lot of underwater cinematography but um i just love water and so all that to be said i i ended up making um 
a film in the fly fishing space. And that was kind of like my first cutting my teeth. I self-funded it. I think I like pulled together like $10,000 and just totally invested in myself and like rented the red camera and like, you know, like literally was like looking up tutorials, rented this thing, was driving to go film fishing, was like YouTubing, like, okay, how to screw the monitor onto the camera, you know, like on the way to go do the filming, like totally faking it till you make it mentality, but just, just nothing was going to stop me at that time. And I look back at that video now and I laugh, right? It's really bad, <laughs> but it was the first. And it also taught me um, that next step. And and then I ended up, you know, this is the emergence of the brand films, like right? short films. You know, there was this this bubble, right, that was created. And, and um, starting in what was that, 2015 or so, the bubble started. And it, I really think it's just now starting to pop. I think we're going to see a lot fewer, you know, 15 to 25 minute short films that are um, driven by brands. Um, but for that air, I just caught the wave, like right on the front end. And before I knew it, I was playing with six figure budgets and, you know, um, yeah, just launched me into storytelling. And that's the thing I think that's, um, in an effort to, again, continue to compress time. The thing that like I gravitated toward wasn't just fly fishing films. It wasn't uh, just cycling films. It wasn't hunting film. It wasn't, it was just. I found storytelling to be a unique challenge. And I think the thing that I, I didn't want to be defined by some niche genre of, of, of filming, I just wanted to be focused on something timeless. I wanted to create films that created introspective revelations within us. And, you know, the outdoors is the ultimate healer, right? Like when we go spend time in nature, you know, like we, it's like that favorite, my, one of my favorite quotes, I forget even who said it right now, but it's, you know, if, if you're, if you're mad, if you're frustrated, go take a walk. And if you're still mad and frustrated, when you get back, go take another walk, you know? And it's like, um, I truly believe, and I live a lifestyle and I, and I have three children and I, I, we push them into a lifestyle where we spend as much time outside as possible. And, I found that the greatest vector for telling some of the most important stories um, of, of our time and of the past uh, and potentially of the future are going to be founded in the outdoors. And so that's my niche. That's my genre is like I use stories based in the outdoors to, you know, do what we do best, connect with other human beings. And that's my whole vector. That's my whole focus. And that's what eventually led me to Lifetime's doorstep which is where the idea for Call of a Lifetime began. I love it. I love it. Also, you must be a Shimano guy at this point between the fly fishing and the bikes. <laughs> Just 100%. really feels, yeah, like you don't really have a choice, right? <laughs> yeah, um, Shimano all the way. Yeah, Shimano and, and Trek are my go-to, so... Okay, we love that on this podcast. Uh, my husband Peter, my my co-host here, is also a Trek athlete, so we're we're right yeah. there with you. Yeah, um, no, I'm I'm all about it. In fact, moving forward, I'm gonna I'm gonna call Trek up and let them know that I'm ready to create a sponsorship with them because we need some e-bikes and stuff to film these races. Ooh, I love we, that. We I need a bike that. sponsor as the filmmakers because what people don't realize is it is incredibly challenging to actually film bike racing. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, actually, e-bikes, now that I'm now that you mentioned it, they would solve a lot of the problems because one of the the constant like complaints from the racers is always the the dust that the vehicles right. that are filming kick up. Right. Right? right. And I've heard this, you know, not not from Call of a Lifetime specifically, but like 
all of these gravel races that are trying to do full coverage, right? You have ATVs and you have like actual like pickup trucks on the road. And I've been in these pickup trucks, like trying to do some of the live coverage and you're just dusting these racers the entire time, even though you're not going overly like quickly, but yeah. An e-bike. No, you Ooh. certainly can. If you don't know what you're doing, um, you can really, you know, and that's always our goal. You can really um, kind of alter their race experience, mm-hmm. and that's never what we want to do. And so we've got formulas and strategies, but we sacrifice a lot of good imagery. We sacrifice good moments because we don't ride in front of the riders. There's mm-hmm. that, and there's also the draft issue. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, it's funny, riders – it's like you're part of the film crew and you know here we are just like trying to create good coverage so people can enjoy the race experience and sometimes i do get frustrated because if they can grab a draft they'll take a draft yeah and that's frustrating because i'm like man i'm just trying to get my shot and i'll pull in right behind you and you got to move on because yep. like and now you now... disadvantage to give give someone a draft and we can't be part of that problem and now you've broken the spirit of gravel okay okay so you got back into into riding like you've made your comeback in the past year was it doing call of a lifetime that got you back on the bike or was sure. it like which which begat which <laughs> yeah so you know i guess but before we get there because we're jumping some time um it might be better just to talk about how call of a lifetime came to be yeah yeah let's let's talk about that and so and then we'll get to that part but season one of call of a lifetime um was essentially just when i bumped into um pace and mcelvin and pace and mcelvin i'd made a red bull and trek film of his white rim um standing man is what we called that film and so that was technically like my first ever piece to direct in the bike space was his standing man um fkt attempt uh, which he did, which is awesome. Proud of Payson. Uh, Payson is a longtime friend. He's also from Austin, Texas. So shout out. Um, always rooting for Payson. But Payson hit me up and was like, hey, man, I just caught when there's something you should know about. There's this thing called the Lifetime Grand Prix. I'm part of it. I think it has potential to change the landscape in North America for cycling. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Well, you have to remember, this is like right after... I think season two of drive to survive had been released and I was amazed with like, it was like a magic trick for me. Like when I watched episode one, season one of drive to survive, I instantly became a fan of formula one. And Mm -hmm. as a film director, I admired and I appreciated how they totally brainwashed me. And I thought, man, how did they do that? And so I, I totally just like went to school and studied their episodes and, you know, read the writings from their directors and, you know, followed the film team and just did as much digging as I could on the how and the why and um, the how to um, for sure. And so that became a fixation of mine before Payson had even reached out. So my, I was already, my wheels were already churning in this, like, I want to create a series because if you look at Drive to Survive and what they did, right, they, they didn't use, the racing is just the vector. The story mm-hmm. hooks you as the characters because as human beings, we connect with other human beings, you know? And so they did a really good job using the characters to create a race series. And it was kind of a unique first of its kind model and, you know, on its emergence. Now we see a lot of it. It's a bit saturated in it, but that's okay uh, because it's still cool. 
And, um, and I'm excited for that because I thought, man, what a, an amazing way to pull people into and, and help people recognize and appreciate and fall in love with a sport. And as you know, one of the great challenges cycling faces is how the point structures work, the series, there's so many series, the points are pretty complicated, you know, like, it's not an easy thing to follow. You mm -hmm. have to really care. It's not like, yeah, anyways, that's what I liked about the Grand Prix. Grand Prix was very simple. Invite only, cash prize, limited races, and an easy to follow point structure. Like yep. all the prereqs you need to build a cool film series. And so I, when I, when Payson introduced me to the idea, I then was like really excited because when I realized what this thing was and how it was pretty unique for North America, I thought, well, Payson, make an intro. And he did. He introduced me to Lifetime and um forever grateful to him for that because it led to a conversation that ironically lifetime michelle duffy i think is the first person i got on the phone with over there and i think the words that came out of her mouth were something like you know i don't you know we're, we're, we want to invest we want to create content around the series and we're thinking something like drive to survive and i was like cool like we're on the same page like and at that point it became this beautiful collaboration and like that's the coolest part about working with lifetime as i can tell you um, uh, 110%, like their, their, their passion for creating, um, fandom for these athletes and growing the sport in North America is very altruistic. It's not to say that they're not going to make a huge profit if the more successful it is, of course, like that's Which awesome. I, I think it's okay to acknowledge, like I might Which get some flack awesome. for this, but like, that's how the sport continues to grow. Like if companies aren't making right. a profit on their thing that they're doing, they're not going to be around anymore. So well, of course, I think they've proven they're pretty good stewards of what they do with their profits. I mean, let's look at what they're doing right now. You know, they are by no means upside right on the Lifetime Grand Prix as a series and as a investment into the film, right? And their their goal with creating Call of a Lifetime was to popularize, to make fans out of the key faces that are in this industry and this kind of new athlete that's emerged out of it, right? This endurance off-road racer who has merged mountain biking and gravel as their fixation and is changing their training and giving everything they have. I mean, this is incredibly complex stuff. It's more than skill set. It's endurance, right? And endurance is a whole new beast. And um, and so I think that, you know, they've they've proven to everybody at this point, as far as I'm concerned, that they're in it. For the long haul and, and they mm -hmm. want they, they they are if anybody's going to make it happen it's them and the hope is is of course the bike industry can't support probably um i don't think i don't think it's ever realistic to think that just the bike industry can support lucrative lifestyles and rewarding lifestyles much in the way we see you know maybe the old tour de france you know kind of paydays or the um football or baseball players right you need non-endemic sponsorship you need outside partners coming in and that's the thing that lifetime is bringing to the table is they recognize that and they're doing everything they can to pull in non-endemic sponsors and mazda being the first and kudos to mazda you know they are they've continued to uh, go along this journey and will continue along this journey and i can't wait to see what other non-endemic sponsors come in but that that's the testament that's going to be the thing that really um changes the tide for the cycling industry and and for these athletes who dedicate 
so much of their lives. I mean, literally they sacrifice everything. They can't even live in one spot. You know, they got to mm-hmm. be at this altitude in this amount of time before this series. And then they got to be in, in this climate and this environment. They're literally moving themselves around the world for these races and, and their commitment and to it is, is, as far as I'm concerned, they, they, I hope they find a way in time to get paid what they deserve because their dedication is unlike anything I've ever seen. And that brings me to your other question, which is like, what inspired me to get back on the bike? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before we hit that, I mean, with call of a lifetime, I think this is actually one of the most interesting parts. There's always been cyclists for the, I mean, I can remember 15 years ago, Jeremy Powers starting behind the barriers. There's always been some cyclists that were good at doing, we were not going to say like super high quality video, especially in the beginning when it was like flip cams and no smartphones, but like there's been a lot of cyclists doing video, telling stories that way, but not all of the cyclists within a series. So I think what's fascinating is you had a really big challenge of like, there's also the introverted cyclist or the cyclist who's like not super comfortable, you know, hold it on camera and telling their story. So, I mean, that first season, how was it trying to, you know, you have some athletes that are so comfortable on camera and so good at just like sharing their story. And like, it's like they've been media trained and then others that are. Yeah. Well, I think it has to do with how you started this phone call. Who are you? Where did you come from? You know, no one knew who I was last year. Like I don't have any name recognition in this, in this sport, probably still don't, but the reality is to a core few, um, you know, that trust relationship was really, you know, it took just that time. Time is how you build trust. And, um, fortunately I had a few allies, you know, people like Sevilla LeBanc and Cole Patton and Pace and McElvin, who I'm literally like walking into Sea Otter last year. And what was that? 2022. And I'm like a week before the race, I mean, like, Payson, you might text this guy, Keegan, like, seems like a pretty big deal. Like, I really didn't know anything about him at that point. You know, it was a pretty big uh, trial by fire, sink or swim, you know, um, just educating myself on the who is the best. And, you know, especially the first year of the series, we had no idea who would kind of um, who would thrive in this sort of race series. And so literally Payson and Cole are just like vouching for me. We're like, dude, Shannon's cool. I promise. Like, give him some time. <laughs> it's like, dude, episode one, season one, like we're scrumming. Like we're trying to figure out bike racing. Like there's logistic, like it's hard. Like, I don't care who you are. Like, and you know, no one, no one's done what we're, we're doing. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Filming road racing is a cakewalk. Are you kidding me? Like filming gravel racing, like, a bit challenging, not too bad. Filming single track mountain biking as a race, like as an endurance race, like come on, like yeah. And I mean, throw in like than that, yeah. Sea yeah. Otter being the first race of the year, it's not only a, a race; it's also a huge event. You have to like get through the festival with your gear. Parking totally. is somehow eighteen miles from the venue. Like so yeah. many logistical issues with that. <laughs> but well, you mentioned, well, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say like the, like that first episode, like, man, it was, it was really challenging. Um, but at the same time, step by step, we gained the trust and I was able to communicate the vision for what we were trying to create. And, you know, um, like I'm super grateful for all the athletes because everyone I think sees it, right? Like media attention is good, right? Like media attention is what we need and really what we're lacking, right? That's mm-hmm. how you build fans is through media and then that's how you get paid more money 
right, is through more fans because more fans are buying more bikes. And then more bikes means companies have more money. And when they have more money, they pay you more to ride for them, right? It's it's a it's a cycle there. And so a lot of people like Keegan um, saw that, right? And and so many other riders, Hannah Otto and like Sarah Sturm and just like Haley Smith, and the list goes on and on, like from day one, um, eager and excited and just so helpful to me and helping me kind of get my feet wet in this space and with season one and humbling. Like the most humbling point was probably after the race at Sea Otter year one, where literally that morning, or the day before I was like, I need an e-bike. Like, I don't know how I'm going to film this race. I thought I had a plan and our plan was like decent, but we just didn't, we totally underestimated how fast these riders were going to going to go. Fortunately, we, we realized that the day before the race. And so we went uh, literally walking around sea otter trade show floor, you know, the big arena every there. And I just kept going to e-bike companies like, Hey, do y'all have any e-bikes? Like I can use for the race tomorrow. And they were like, who are you? Like what? And so eventually we found, I don't even remember the brand's name. I'm sorry if you remember this and you're listening to this, but like the reality is I don't remember. I remember it weighed about the same as my bathtub. Like it was so heavy and the battery life on that thing was advertised probably at like 60 miles and it like ran out after 15 and so I literally ran out of battery halfway through the race. So I'm pedaling this bathtub like up this hill. And mind you, like at this time, I probably weigh like 210 pounds, like 206, 208 pounds, I don't know, somewhere like that. It slowly crept up through the years. And um, and so at this time, I had no, like the bike was still pretty foreign to me. Like I ride sometimes, but not really like gotten kind of out of shape, have three kids, it happens. And so I got back after filming the race. I'm like walking in and there's like my team of seven people. And I like sit down and all of a sudden both my quads lock like Charlie horse up. And it was like, I got electrocuted and it's like still one of my favorite memories. Cause it was just this ultimate humility of just like, man, we got to figure out how we're actually going to execute this thing because here I am seizing up my quads, like rolled up. I'm on the floor. You know, that feeling Charlie horse, my team's like, Oh, I'm like screaming and writhing in pain. And like, yeah, it was just kind of a funny moment and, and reflecting on that and where we are now, it just feels like it's been a pretty natural evolution. And, and that evolution has been a building on building. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. where we're now is like, now I'm looking at season three. Now I'm looking ahead and our logistics, our planning, everything just feels so educated, feels so dialed. I mean, I, I know the turns on the courses to film. I, I know where attacks are going to happen. And like, man, to compare and contrast that to year one, it's night and day for mm-hmm. sure. I love it. I love it. So while you're writhing in pain, your quads are on fire. Are you thinking, oh God, I want to get good at this? Or did that come <laughs> afterward? At what point are you calling Cole being like, help me, please? Yeah, at that point, I'm I'm thinking probably something to along the lines of like, how can I get inebriated as quick as possible? Um, the, the, the reality is, is like, um, I didn't, it didn't, I'm pretty thick skulled sometimes and it didn't click at that point. I went through all last season, season one, completely being inspired and just blown away at like what's going on with certain people like Ellen Campbell, like she walked into that thing, never done 60 miles or a hundred miles. And here she is attempting unbound. And like, you know, in many ways as a director, you're a fly on the wall learning. You have to like, 
don't know why I relate it to this, but like, you remember like dirty jobs with Mike Rowe and how he just like plop himself in people's world and learn everything he could to know about their world and their job and their trades and like get his hands dirty with them. And then the next episode was something new. And so it's been a couple of days in this person's world, seeing it the way they see it. And a lot of times I feel like that's being a film director. Like when, when you, when you dive into something, you, you need to understand it from its most core credible components. Mm -hmm. And so for me, my journey back to the bike was absolutely influenced twofold. One, just wanting to be fit and healthy, uh, but also just realizing just like what the human body is capable of and and how it's all between the years. And what happens between the years is what determines what you're capable of. And um, and and to see that, to have a front row seat of that all season long with with professional athletes who are great people who are kind but also just insanely dedicated it it lit a fire in me um that was pretty it's still burning pretty bright right now mm -hmm. um, and i was out yesterday like wind chill of 13 my fingers numb i did a 10 mile ride only because i've never done it in that wind chill and i was like i want to know what it's like my cheeks are burning red and like <laughs> I did this ride yesterday, and for me, it was the first time, you know, that I've ever even considered riding, much less ride. I think I did like 10 miles yesterday, not much, but it's all I can endure. But I'm like alternating, putting hands in my pockets. I don't know anything about the right gear to do that kind of stuff in, and, and I'm just learning. And so I think, um, yeah, that that that's what lit the fire. But but getting healthy was certainly I have three kids and, you know, it's like my dad's a bit overweight and I don't hold that against him, but I also know it's in my genes. It's in everyone's genes, but you know, a clean way of living is, is always been the goal. And so in April of this year, um, uh, well in March of this year, I was like, all right, meat and vegetables only, you know? And that's, wow. that was my, I just went like straight meat and vegetables only for the first month and a half. Uh, the gym or the bike or anything I got through sea otter and then at that point I started getting on the bike and I'll remember that first three miles I rode I live here in the hill country of Texas which is pretty hilly like elevation gain over five miles is maybe 800 to a thousand foot so not crazy but not nothing and so um yeah I remember that first three and a half miles like just whacked like getting <laughs> My wife is like, oh, like I'm sweaty and it's Texas, so it's hot, especially in May. Um, but I just remember being like each milestone, each time I got on the bike, I was able to push harder and go further. And then, you know, Garmin's and, you know, like Strava and all of a sudden I'm measuring analytics and everything just became a step after step. And all of a sudden I'm 205 pounds. And then all of a sudden I'm like 195. And then like a month later, I'm like hitting 190 and I'm like, I can't believe it. And then you know, I keep hitting these thresholds, you know, and, and then, um, I'm a, I'm a hunter, I'm a bow hunter. And I went on an elk hunt and I went to the Uncompadre wilderness in Colorado, which is very steep mountains somewhere. I, two years ago, I would have said, no, I'm not going to go hunt that. And uh, me and my buddy Noah Thompson went and hunted that. And I walked into that trip at 185, 183 pounds. And I came home 178. I couldn't believe it. I was like, man, I lost a bunch of weight and I have not I have not gotten heavier than 178 since September. And it was all because I just trained for the Austin Rattler. Mm -hmm. um, and I picked that as the light at the end of my tunnel. I was like, I'm training for this race. And I'm, I want to know what it's like to be an endurance athlete. I want to know what it's like to race a bike. I'm telling these stories. And then something un 
suspecting happened. I didn't, I walked into it with the goal to get healthier and just be stop being frustrated with, you know, not being disciplined, but, but then something really cool happened. I began seeing storytelling in the bike space in a whole new way. And, and that in itself, uh, kind of unlocked kind of where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's actually, it's cycling is such an interesting sport because it's one of the very few sports where you can see the right, like you can watch pro racing, but you can also participate in it, like almost right. doing the same things that the, the pros are doing. Um, so on one hand, I'm kind of like, I can see how getting on the bike would actually like enhance your storytelling capabilities and like doing a race would like change how you're able to like tell the story about racing. But I could also see it from the opposite perspective of like not knowing about like what it's like to be in a race because the drive to survive people didn't like do an F1 race. Like they're just, they're doing it based on like, you know, what the, the riders are telling, what the drivers are telling them. Right. So yeah. What, how did that, I guess, yeah. How did it, how did it change like your perspective of it? And like, how do we see that play out in season two, which will be out like a couple days before this episode airs? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So I guess if you're listening to this now, the season's uh, been released, so you should go listen or go watch it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, to answer your question, I think walking into anything with fresh eyes is so valuable. And that's, that is an ethos I live by because I'm not afraid to go tell stories in any space. If someone called me tomorrow and wanted me to go tell the story of free divers in Tahiti, I'd say, okay, I don't know anything about free diving in Tahiti, but like I know story and mm-hmm. story is what drives. And so I want to go explore this thing that interests me. And so that's how I approach the bike racing and having fresh new eyes, I I think you certainly will see it much like the viewer, right? And so what we're filming and what captivates me as a director and what I feel passionate to tell as a story, uh, I would hope. And I think what we found is kind of some of that similar surface level stuff that I think anybody new to understanding off-road cycling, especially in North America, um, is probably seeing as well. And so yeah, I fight to still hold on to that as much as possible. But in reality, as time has progressed and what people will see in season two is um, I'm a bit more nuanced, you know, and and that excites me, honestly, because mm-hmm. I think it's very legible and I think it's very uh, you can follow it. No problem. You don't have to be some core credible cyclist and understand anything to be able to track along with these stories that we're telling. But I definitely found myself um you know, we, I conduct a lot of interviews. I, I do interviews at every race. On average, I'm doing 15 to 20 interviews per race, most of the time with the same people, the same characters at each race, because my goal is to track the transformation of a mindset over time, right? And so that's that vector of story, because story is a journey, right? We, a lot of us in storytelling call it the hero's journey. But, you know, there's this idea that you have a known world. And season two, for many people, their known world was the advantage of knowing the races and having a year to essentially recon the Grand Prix uh, before they're doing season two. For many faces, like the international riders especially, this is all very new to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And Danny Shrosby's out buying bucket hats because she's never seen a bucket hat before, you know, like in California. Like Matt Beers is like getting humbled by altitude because he's never actually really respected altitude before. And so all of a sudden for these international riders, it becomes this American code that they got to crack. And and so, you know, season two for me um, just became this nuanced approach to um, 
to unpacking story and a new kind of perspective. And a lot of that I discovered on the bike. A lot of my perspective on racing, not all of it by any means, but a lot of it came from the time that I directly from the time I was spinning on the bike. Mm-hmm. And that that was pretty empowering and and pretty cool. And and in those interviews, um, you know, we're we're sitting there. Um I, I got, I digress. I got off the hero, hero's journey thing. I apologize for that. But the, um, but the idea simply being um, that, I, sorry, I just totally lost my train of mind. My daughter just totally fell down on her bike of all things. Right oh, now. No. I'm waiting for her to get back up and she finally got back up. So I apologize for that. That's um, too funny. Well, she got no. back up. So yay for her. <laughs> yeah, she did. Well, we try to teach that. And anytime my kids fall down, we say, what do you do now? Stand back up. Um, so to get back on track, um, the the if I go back to the hero's journey thing, you know, the, the idea and the goal is simply just to focus on um, defining what that known world is and then unpacking these characters experience through the year. And then my time on the bike really just showed me that you know, what a rider is experiencing and how they're looking at their training and, and, and what they're thinking about when they're actually racing is, is very directly connected to the time they spend on the bike. And the more time I spend on the bike, time on the bike, the more I begin to empathize with some of the struggles that they were having. And so that's what I hope people walk away with, right, is how we use these heroes' journeys with these characters to evolve their transformation and the perspectives over time, mm-hmm. you know, and and how that defines them as a professional athlete and how that definition of being a professional athlete in North America is this rapidly evolving thing. You know, you have the spirit of gravel and like this movement and it's changing and, you know, certain people are upset that like the spirit of gravel is like 200 riders back and when it used to be the front of the pack, you know, and, but now competitive riders have come in and now the pointing into the spear is, this is a very competitive thing and their strategy. And, you know, some of the strategy bothers people. Like you can do things like sit on a wheel and not take your poles. And that's a totally allowed strategy. It's not a way to get popular, but it's something you can do. And so all of a sudden, all these nuances just kind of be, just came to life for me. And so season two is, is a lot about, I think, a more educated and experienced approach to bike racing and really trying to define bike racing and letting the bike racing come through the storytelling so that while we're watching racing, we, we almost feel and see what's going inside uh, mm-hmm. their minds. And, yeah. and that became the vector for me. Yeah. And I mean, with the nature of season two, where there is more focus on a couple of the races, um, it's Leadville, Unbound, uh, Big Sugar. Is that the three that have the like primary focus? Yeah. So it's Sea Otter, Unbound, Leadville, and Big Sugar. Yeah. Right. So it's a little bit less like just each racer's like the quick, you know, how it went. We can like, you actually can really dig into the nuance more. So I think like the structure of it lends itself to that as well as your, your mindset going in. Uh, So on the bike, uh, we talked about this last time we chatted, but we didn't get into the how Uh, I asked you if you, when you're out training and you're riding, are you thinking about work and are you thinking about like, Ooh, this shot, or like, this is how I should change this, or this is like an editing thing I should do. Um, and you, you said like, yes, it helps give you clarity and I am the same way. How do you, when you have an idea on the bike, 
what do you do with mm. the idea? Because you're on the bike. Like, do you stop? <laughs> kind of do you like record it? Like, what do you do? Um, no, this is actually funny. It was a problem I had to solve. And one of the ways that I solved it is just writing with uh, earbuds in that have a microphone. And I'm just like, hey, Siri, can you make a note for me? <laughs> Love it. Will you remind me to email Molly and thank her for the time with the podcast tomorrow? Boom. Done, right? Love and so it. I'm on the bike. I don't even have to take my hands off the handlebars. All of a sudden, I'm just making a note. I have a thought. I'm processing something. And what's unique about bike riding to me is, you know, you, you is a flow, right? Obviously, especially single track. Like, I've been doing a lot of gravel riding, and I like it because you can go far and cover a lot more distance, and I enjoy that. But like, I just love single track. And the, in single, there's nothing like single track that just emphasizes the importance of what's right in front of you. And so if you're like me and your your mind can wander, like your daughter falls on a bike and you get sidetracked, I can't do that thing where my brain processes two things at one time, um, at least not deeply. And so when I'm on single track, I find myself in flow states. And when I'm in a flow state and I'm in a rhythm, my mind is allowed to become fixated. And I can think, I've, one of the things that works really well for me in filmmaking is, is scripting but i have one of these imaginations like wild dreams my mind, my wife will do that every every morning it was like man you're moving a lot in your sleep last night I have wild dreams but i've always been able to completely visualize something like i can see an image in my brain very clearly i can see the exact opening shot i want of a film and so whenever i'm scripting i'm like my biggest headache um, is actually finding imagery to reflect exactly what I see. I become fixated on what I saw. And so um, I spent a lot of time in scripting, finding imagery, but thank God for AI. Oh my gosh. Like text to image is revolutionizing my world right now. Like I can type things and then it learns me. And all of a sudden, like my scripting has gone out the roof with productivity because of AI, but I digress. Ooh, um, interesting. I love that. It's funny. And so, this is why I'm a writer and not a filmmaker is because I'm the exact same as you, but I get so frustrated when I can't fight like when I wasn't able to do, like, I can't actually do the imaging because I'm not yeah. that kind of creative, but I can write it perfectly. Yeah. My descriptions get <laughs> lengthy because they can be whatever I want them to be. It's great. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's one of my favorite processes. And so it's like um, the creative process, it's, if anything, right? Like designing, like I'm a homeowner here in Texas and I'm an addict to remodeling our house. And I'm an, I'm an addict to like um, dreaming what we can do next. And my current dream is finding a way to add more bedrooms and potentially a second story. And here I am on my iPad, like drawing it up and coming. And I love that creative process. It's, it's why I do this job. And so the bike has become this really important vector. And so literally what I will do when I know I need to start thinking, I need to script an episode or I need to do anything. The first thing that I do is I go get on the bike and I get about two hours on it. Two hour space on a bike is a really happy space for me. If I can go cover like 20 miles, 25 miles, something like that, depending on how push hard I'm pushing myself. At that point, my brain is still healthy. I can still be really focused. I can think abstractly. And I just sit there making notes. Mm -hmm. And you'll also be left to know I take a lot of business calls on the bike. I'll be riding single track. There's good cell service where I ride. And if someone calls me, I'll, I'll answer it. And they're like, oh, you're biking again, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, can you hear me? I'm like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> cool, let's stop. 
like I can have a full uh, thoughtful conversation on the phone too. So oh, I love it. Fixated on something and just being in a flow, it if it, it frees up my mind to become undistracted and it's yeah. in its own unique way. So oh, fantastic! I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, so. Okay, so you know, you and I have talked about this. I want to give context because I think our listeners, again, we're used to seeing videos come out in cycling all the time, but the work that goes into a call of a lifetime is vast. So give me the like terabytes, the hours of filming. Like I want yeah. the the specifics here. What does a season take? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my hard drives are, are, are look like people's whole computers, right? Like I think this season we're pushing the threshold of a hundred terabytes of content curated, you know, um, on average, we've got 12 people to 15 people in the field. Um, we are breaking them up into units. Um, each episode, the way we structured this season, especially was a unique challenge, something we deviated from last year, but you know, one of the, our driving uh, beacons is, you know, just equality uh, between men and women's coverage. And so, you know, it, there are certain races which have are way more um, recognizable and just bigger deals than other races. And, you know, Sea Otter, Unbound, Leadville and Big Sugar are, are in this in this series are those races. And so episode one is a men and women co-ed episode um episodes two and three alternate it's an unbound episode for women and then an unbound episode for men and we do the same thing for leadville one for each and then the final episode in the six uh the six of the six part series is big sugar which is also a co-ed episode so the idea being episodes one and six episode one is the the questions being asked the future, very much looking forward, setting the stage for the stakes, introducing uh, a vast amount of your characters, not all of them, but um, a lot of characters, reestablishing last season's characters. And then, you know, episodes two through five are, are really in that world of the here and now, the present tense, you know, the building, the the going along the journey, right? You know, going back to that hero's journey, you have your known world, and then you cross into your unknown world. And really, like, Sea Otter was their first crossing into their unknown world, and when things really started getting sh shaken up, and and then Unbound, especially with the mud this year, like, really, like, put, put people um in in different mindsets and and it, it kind of it became a point of conversation and so going with certain characters along those journeys to the season eventually brought us to the sixth episode which instead of looking forward is very reflective it's looking back it's the popcorn episode is what i call it you know you've kind of done your work you've built your stories you've introduced your characters and now it's time to close your loops and um pay off your mystery boxes and um, yeah, this is all very much film language, but the reality is, is like, it's a point to just really reflect back on the year and, and to ask ourselves the question of, of what was learned and to see that transformation walking into it. You know, for example, you got like Brendan Johnston from Australia, first time in America, first time racing North American series, walked into Sea Otter and the question he poses, he just want to know where he stands. Like, where do I fit in? in this circuit. I don't even know. I could be last. I could be first. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. So his world got rocked and he really, he almost jumped on a plane and quit and flew home after Unbound, you know? Um, and he did it, you know, and I'm proud of him for not doing it because the season really turned around after that. And he really 
he really pressed into it. And so he went through his own valley of the shadow of death, you know, like he, you think about like, you know, Lord of the Rings is one of the best films to talk about hero's journey, right? Because you have like Frodo and the Shire and then you have Mordor and this journey he goes on and, you know, like the ultimate return of the heroes when he goes back to the Shire and it, he thinks it's this thing he's wanted the whole time. And, and then he doesn't end up staying in the Shire. He leaves, right? He's seen too much. He's done too much. He knows too much. And, and so it transformed him as an individual. And, and so when I'm thinking about characters and their seasons and this hard thing that they're doing, and when you're halfway through a season, what kind of mindset are you in? When you're looking up points and you're at Leadville and you only got three races left, like, what are you thinking about when, when you're walking into the last race? And, you know, if you do really well, you're in the money. If you don't do really well, you're out of the money. Like, it's going to change for each person, depending on where they're at in the standings on how they're going to approach the race and, mm -hmm. and how they're going to talk about their season and, and how that's going to drive their desire to want to come back and do this thing again next year. Mm -hmm. So much of what keeps this train moving is people's investment and excitement for it. And so the question of, is this reshaping off-road racing in North America? I think so, right? Because we see people keep coming back year after year because it's still challenging to them. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, okay. Who's our, who's our Gandalf in call of a lifetime? Like, <laughs> he's the gandalf <laughs> kimo is one of the best talking voices of but i love i'll give you that i'll give you that like, kimo is totally like you know I, I i have a lot of respect for kimo because he's got a hard job it's not a popular thing sometimes making the decisions that you got to make as you know a race director as the president of the company that puts on the races um, there's a lot of points of criticism for anybody to make. Um, probably that all can counter contradict each other, you know, like you can't ever make anyone happy. And, you know, I, I think chemo has been really, really cool to work with because I've just seen someone who has an ethos and a love and a passion for just that strive to continue to evolve Absolutely. and to apply that to all things. And, and, and for the women's side of the racing, for the men's side of the racing, it doesn't matter. There's constant evolution on all fronts. And mm -hmm. so just being good stewards to that. So I've, I've constantly found, um, you know, I usually look at chemo to help tie the room together sometimes. And you'll see that in the series. It's like, man, you get this the best. Give me my 30,000 foot perspective. Help, help me to understand what's going on in the mind of these athletes so I can cue them up, you know, and help yeah. jump from, from different parts of the world to the other. So love it. Love it. Okay. Last question before we talk about where we everyone can find the season and all this. What was your favorite moment of filming? Might not even be the most like important moment, just your personal, like either, oh, this was the most perfect vision or perfect answer or just amazing moment. Yeah, no, that's pretty easy for me to see Brendan Johnston um, come place what he placed at Big Sugar, which I think was third. Um, which put him on the first step, I believe, if not the second step for the Grand Prix. But following along his journey, I mean, literally like in tears in the interview room, like he has a daughter and a wife and he just, you know, he committed. This is a hard career to be in. And he made huge sacrifices to come to America and to see him really struggling, you know, unbound. He didn't even get to finish because of the mud. You know, um, one of his quotes that you'll find in the series is, you know, they say never to meet your hero, 
And for me, Unbound was my hero of gravel racing. You know, like he really struggled. He, he, you know, was really, I've never seen anybody just get really put through the ringer to the point where, like I said, he, he was, he was looking at tickets to fly home to wrap this thing up early and just say, I tried. Um, and so I've got a lot of respect for somebody who can persevere through those, those struggles. Um, and so, um, he knows a bit about struggling and, um, you know, he, he, he was diagnosed with cancer when he was 17 years old. And so he knows struggle and he claims that this year he struggled even harder than potentially a struggle with cancer. Um, and so, you know, I have a lot of respect and empathy for someone that, perseveres through that and then to see him be rewarded you know mm-hmm. he was on the podium at the rad and I think um and then of course what happened at Big Sugar and, and I just I, I know that was really validating for him because he knew he believed in himself so much even despite a really rough start to it and in the end it, it put him in that top 10 and it, it it got him an automatic invite to come back and do it again this year and and he's coming back. And I think that's really cool. So yeah, if I think about storylines that really warm my heart, moments that warm my heart, I I think about being in the helicopter and filming and just like, I literally welled up with emotion for him as I'm like flying that big camera in the helicopter, just like, dude, like, heck yeah, I'm right down there with you, Brendan. Like, I'm so stoked for you. Um, and and I don't know. I don't know if these athletes realize we, how invested we get into them and how much, like, just total fans, like, we we really root for them, you know? Mm-hmm. I also agonize, you know, like Sarah Sturm. Like, she's gotten second, she's gotten third, she's gotten fourth uh, at Leadville, but she had never gotten first. And so I really wanted it for this year. I was really, like, was really invested in that that with her. And I really as the race evolved. And again, I was in that helicopter filming like, dang, I just like, I, I was just real bummed for her race. Didn't come together. She even said it before the race. She was like, I've got second, third and fourth. Hopefully I don't get fifth. <laughs> I want first. And so, but no, I think she ended up like seventh or something like that, but or mm-hmm. maybe further back seventh in the grand prix, but all that to be said. Yeah. Um, that was probably my favorite moment seeing that, but the mud was pretty rowdy. We thought we were going to get stuck with our big. <laughs> and I literally, am just like stressing out. I told the drivers, one of my best friends in life, Brian Freeman, I told him as the race started, I was like, dude, I promise I'm not going to freak out at all today. And we have this funny GoPro, like we record ourselves filming. He sent me actually this funny moment where I literally say, okay, don't worry. I'm not going to freak out this year because the start to unbound is so stressful. And when you're in a side-by-side and you're filming riders and they're trying to pass you, man, if they get to that gravel before you do, but you have a police barricade holding you back, which is really difficult. So the police aren't going fast enough and the riders ride up to the police and you get sandwiched in them. It can be really dangerous for the riders, for yourself, et cetera. And this funny video is me saying, I won't freak out and not, but it had to have been 30 seconds later. I'm like, watch out, dude, there's riders on our right. And I'm totally freaking out. <laughs> so when we hit the mud, it was like, we knew if we let off the gas at all, we were going to get stuck. And these riders are getting stuck. And so we ended up having to just like barge on through, film what we could. And then I, once we got to the top of the mud, I just jumped out and went slogging in the mud with a handheld camera. But that was a pretty wild, wild west moment for me. We need year. like we need a bonus episode of Call of a Lifetime. That's all the behind the scenes. Would love yeah. to see it. <laughs> but yeah. okay, before I let you go, <laughs> tell everyone where they can find you, where they can follow, find Call of a Lifetime, all the things. 
Well, cool. Yeah. So listening to this right now, um, it is out. Um, you can go to the YouTube channel, the Lifetime Grand Prix. I believe it's youtube.com backslash at Lifetime Grand Prix. Um, and that is where you will be able to find season two. If you haven't seen season one, I might suggest watching that first, but that's up to you. Season two is definitely an improvement on season one. So I'm very excited for season two to come out. And then if you would like to follow me personally, um, you can find me at Instagram, right? Shannon Vanderveer is my personal page and my company is called Collaborative. So amazing. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been, as always, such a blast. We're going to have to do it again at some point in the near future, I feel yeah. like. We could just keep doing this. <laughs> well, thanks, Molly. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox. 